0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Wilfred Riley. Wilfred Riley is an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University. He holds a PhD in political science from Southern Illinois University and a law degree from the University of Illinois. Wilfred and I talk about the undiscussed progress that America has made on racial issues. We talk about racial disparities and to what degree they can be attributed to current racism, past racism, or other factors like group cultural differences. We talk about how to interpret audit studies. We talk about the conflation of race and class in mainstream discourse on inequality. We talk about public misperceptions surrounding racism and the cops. We talk about hate crime hoaxes and why people manufacture them, and much more. So without further ado, Wilfred Riley. Wilfred, thanks so much for coming on my show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Obviously, we've done some 1776 stuff together. It's been good to see you again. That was was over a year ago, I guess, now, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, COVID's obviously been the big wedge there. I remember when uh, the day almost COVID first started hitting the big cities and people started shutting down, myself and Jason Riley were going to some type of men's event. And Mm -hmm. I remember him calling me from New York and just saying, like, there's no way this is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, they're like people walking through airports, sanitizing things. I mean, I'm just going to cancel this and send everybody home. And from there, I mean, obviously there were a couple of months of pretty much dead radio silence. Then people started getting back on their feet a little bit.
0: Yeah. For listeners, we're talking about Jason Riley, Wall Street Journal columnist, great writer. And uh, we're talking also about the 1776 project run by Bob Woodson, which is something you and I participated in as a response to the 1619 Project. And we we might cover some of that ground uh, in this conversation. But before we get there, can you tell my listeners who you are, what your
1: background is, how you came to study what you study, and so forth? Sure. Uh, I'm Wilfred Riley. I'm an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, which, in addition to being a good state-level institution, is a historically black college. And I study a range of different things. I mean, in my my professional research, I've looked at things like the logic of funding, collegiate athletics, or what variables make war or conflict more likely. But I'm probably most known in the public eye for some sort of upper end public intellectual writing, where I look at kind of the big themes you see in society and in media, like racial conflict is increasing, white privilege, so on, and use kind of modern empirical methods to check and see whether those are real. And often, whether you're looking at what, quote unquote, SJWs say or what, quote unquote, alt writers say, a lot of this stuff turns out to be kind of nonsensical, which has drawn a fair amount of public attention my way. But uh, that's that's the background. I went to the University of Illinois for law school and Southern Illinois uh, University for graduate school. And I teach here at KSU. So
0: the line that you've taken on all of these topics about the prevalence of racism the narrative, uh, as you call it in your book, the narrative of, of continued oppression narrative, namely the, the idea that not much has changed since the days of the civil rights movement. It's just as hard to be black nowadays in America as it was then, be in, in more subtle ways. A, a lot of the lines you've taken on these topics are very similar to lines I've taken as well. And it's, it's refreshing to read you you know, they, we, we come to very similar conclusions on these topics. And so I can recommend your books, the, the one in the video right there, Taboo. I can re- recommend your books without caveat to my audience. I really think they're they're excellent and a breath of fresh air in a landscape that is just covered top to bottom in bullshit. So let's just start, I guess, with a recent piece you wrote in Commentary magazine. This is about the good news about race that you're you're not hearing about. This is also something I've talked about. And I, I think a year and a half ago, I wrote a long piece for Colette called The Case for Black Optimism, where I was just pointing out, you know, all of these very, noteworthy and positive trends that black people have been experiencing. The slow march of progress on issues like in the incarceration rate, which has been cut in half in my lifetime for young black men, at least black men in their 20s. Health disparities shrinking, uh, life expectancy increasing, education rates going up, all of these sort of trends you never hear about. Contrasted with the constant drumbeat of pessimism and racism is everywhere and and sort of black people can't get ahead. So what was your impetus to write that piece in commentary magazine?
1: Well, I I think it's exactly what you just said. As the average person, white, black, Asian American, Jewish, Hispanic, as you look around your college campus, I mean, the uh, middle class half of society is going to attend college or university. You don't really see a ton of staggering racism. I mean, half of the couples seem to be interracial. If you look at, say, marriage data, that's roughly accurate. I mean, a minimum of 17% of new marriages every year are interracial. But at the same time, we hear constantly if you read it, Dr. Kendi, for example, if you read in the so who has refused multiple challenges to debate either one of us, by the way, I'll. <laughs> 17 yeah. or something. That was the <laughs> number to put 10,000 on yeah. but, I But mean, at any rate, if you uh, read through this stuff, modern sociology, which as an educated person, you will and arguably should read. But uh, D'Angelo, Hacker, Hooks, a lot of very famous people turn on MSNBC or CNN. You see this presented content that would make it seem as though there's almost a race war in the United States. And you sometimes get this on the far out sort of white girl bleed a lot end of the right as well. There's a lot of negative noise being made that seems very different from the reality in day to day life. And I mean, my offhand impression, and I think this is accurate, is that that's because of extraordinary bias in a lot of the social sciences. Our researchers tend to be good. They're not the hacks they're sometimes presented as. But I mean, it's something like 96, 97% of sociologists would identify as liberals or leftists. I think it's 18% currently identify as market or as Marxists when Econ Live actually looked at this at the level of a serious piece. So there is consistent focus on this one thing that is true, which is that in certain fields of American life, you can still find residual racism. If you look at the housing market, for example, it's about 8%. So if you're a young upper middle-class black guy and you apply for 10 apartments, you're likely to be rejected for one of them, whereas your white friend might be rejected for none of them. We do find this sort of thing. But the emphasis only on that seems really kind of unidirectional. And I think that's because of the preferences people in that space have. So for the commentary article, I decided to look at race relations in general. So first, I opened by admitting this. I mean, I'm a black man. I'd identify as pro-Black to the extent this is something I think about at length. But I mentioned some of the some of the evidence of racism, that you're a bit more likely to be rejected uh, applying for a job if you have a quote-unquote very Black name. And again, 8% of people say they wouldn't vote for a qualified same-party Black candidate for president. I don't deny any of this. I look at some of the housing studies. But then I point out the obvious flip side of the coin, which is that You know, since 1954, segregation, at least in major spaces like education, but against the law, since 1964, almost all racial discrimination, not serving someone at your barbecue restaurant, black or white, has been civilly and in many cases, criminally illegal. We've had pro-minority affirmative action in place in the United States, advantaging us dramatically in college since 1967. That's the start of the Philadelphia Plan. that's when you really started seeing universities doing this as well. So in this context, just talking about racism in one direction, by the way, 39% of the country is made up of people of color. We're no less likely to be racist, to put that rather mildly. That's just a small piece of the picture. So I, I explain the changes that have been made legally and socially. And then I just go on to point out some fairly obvious facts. Right now in the United States, eight of the 10 wealthiest groups are populations of color. I mean, you're talking about East Indian Americans are number one. Uh, Japanese Americans are right up there. Filipino Americans. Nigerians are the best educated group. South Africans, which is a mixture of black and white individuals, also come into play in the top 10. So I, I say that while we discuss racism, while we should be open about this, the reality is that racism has been formally illegal for something like 60 years. And the most successful groups in the country, I didn't even mention Jewish Americans, Arab Americans, tend to be minority populations, uh, not infrequently Black or Asian populations. And the reason for this last sentence becomes a little clearer when you just sort of look at the data. Uh, If you adjust for basic things that differ between racial groups, like median age, the region where people live, Asians are less likely to live in sort of that rural South, Black people are more likely, test scores, which honestly obviously predict where you're going to go to college, the kind of income you're gonna have. If you're looking at the same black guy and the same white guy, you're gonna see very, very similar outcomes in life. The gap in income there is about 1%, maybe 2%. If you look at June O'Neill and the economists that have looked at this, and that again shouldn't be all that surprising because out and out racial discrimination has been illegal for half of a century. So that's the point of the piece. This problem exists, but this solution has also been in place for decades and is working pretty well. There's there's no reason for despair.
0: So what one is supposed to think about what you said is that you're now trafficking in the, the model minority myth, right? You're, you're using the fact that Nigerians and East Asians and Indians, a select cream of the crop from those countries come here and do very well as a reason to look at black Americans descended from slavery and say, you know, well, why can't you just be more like them? when the experience is, is uh, of historical oppression is, is not analogous to the experience of immigration. And, and, and furthermore, the sort of the, the immigration selection problem, you know, means that the sample of immigrants is, is sort of the sort of immigrant pluck that they have makes it disanalogous for, for analysis in a, in an American context. So how do you, how do you address
1: that criticism? Well, that point, I mean, it's an intelligently made point, especially as you summarized it, but that, that shouldn't matter at all, right? If the argument is, so the argument of say a Kendi or a DeAndre is very simple. It is that all gaps between groups must be due to racism. Kendi has said this very explicitly in an in-depth major interview with Fox, for example, the argument is that the only two things that can explain large gaps in, for example, SAT score between population groups at that level are, one, genetic inferiority, which he, and for that matter, I, refuses refuse to consider, or racism. Whether or not we can identify it, there has to be some subtle hidden prejudice in the test or the emotional impact of past slavery and the scarification that came from that makes it. Impossible for us to take the test. There has to be some kind of prejudice imbued there that explains any gap. And now we have a direct test of that thesis because we have large Asian and Black communities coming to the United States Nigerians, Ghanaians, Japanese Americans, Korean Americans, Filipino Americans. And if this is true, if there has to be such hidden racism that it causes all of these gaps here stateside, we would expect this to strike these people no matter what their background is. I mean, I remember reading a biography of the great diplomat Ralph Bunch, and in the 1940s, he still had to sit on the back of the bus and had a very low income. That is that extreme, pervasive racism. So if the argument is that still continuing, it's just subtle, you would expect all these groups to fail. What we instead see is that every group I just mentioned not only outperforms blacks, which could possibly be justified by what you just said, but outperforms whites. And again, what we find is that if you look at these very basic predictor variables, like I don't like using the term IQ for this because so much of it is cultural, but like test score, SAT score, GRE score, where people live, which explains a fair amount of the Asian white gap. I'm certainly not saying Asians are superior to blacks or whites. But if you look at these predictors, do you choose to move to a city where there are jobs, where you have a good chance of success? The age thing is one of those things that's so obvious, so non-controversial and never discussed. Uh, the most common age, the modal average for a black person in the USA is 27. For a white person, it's 58. For a Hispanic person, it's 11. Now, again, that's the most common. That's not the median average. It's a little different. But if you don't think that's going to affect crime rates, who the pro athletes are, certainly if you expand into baseball and soccer and so on incomes, you're a fool. I mean, that that's obviously going to be a major predictor. So when you adjust for all this stuff, you find the gaps are on the order of 1%. And I personally think that 1%, which can go up to four, by the way, in some field, that probably is the actual residual for racism. I mean, if you adjust for test score, where people live, you know, a number of other things, you know, study culture, express level of motivation, you actually find that whites earn a little more than exactly identical Asians. So a 2% gap like that might be due to racial prejudice. But taking, as I often say, a 27 year old brother from Mississippi with a solid 980 SAT and comparing him to a 50 year old Jewish American guy from New York who got a twelve hundred back in his day and saying, well, the black guy earns a little less money. That's absolutely meaningless. And people in social science have to know this to some extent. I mean, the methods I just broke down are pretty simple. They're how you or I would start a paper. There are people out there on both sides of the debate that are even better. So when you see people presenting this univariate, raw kind of data, I mean, I at least think that you, you kind of know what's going on. There's a reason that this is being done this way. So the model minority myth, I, I don't see much evidence of it. I think you can adjust for basic things and find that whites, blacks, Asians, and so on all make within a few percent the same incomes as one another. A very quick final sentence. The whole idea of model minority is itself bizarre because it implies kind of a weird reverse causation. Like the implication is that these groups are doing well because white people just love actual black African lords and recent immigrants from Vietnam and so on. Not white people have to respect these long-term enemies because they're doing better than they are. And the first claim seems almost ridiculous. As in, you know, Caucasian Americans, our countrymen don't like black Americans, but they love Nigerians. You'd have to prove that to me. You'd have to see that the average white guy can tell a Nigerian from an American brother. And I don't think you'd find that to be the case. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's ridiculous.
0: I really do think we need, we need to update our mental software for how we interpret these gaps, right? And the, the age point, I think, is worth reiterating. I, I think if I remember the median gap between black people and white people in age is 10 years, right? So not substantially smaller. Yeah. Right. So any median statistic you've ever seen about quote unquote black people and quote unquote white people are essentially comparing people 10 years apart. Right. And a lot happens between 30 and 40 just in human psychology. And, in you know, first of all, you have 10 more years to earn. You have 10 more years of experience you have 10 more years for your youthful aggression and testosterone to fade into you know temperate middle age all of that stuff matters and and yet pretty much any time you've seen a statistic in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal for that matter they don't take age into account that that should be it's 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 a uh, to me that's it's more of a signal of the the quality of the thinking on this issue in public than it is it's because it's, it's not as if the gaps just go away when you take into account age but what's what's deep about this point is just how little logical thought actually goes into the default national conversation about racial inequality that something so simple that in a ninth grade statistics class would cover on day one is actually not a default part of the conversation at all so a lot of directions we could go here. I, I I want to talk about sort of the difference between ideological racism, or or I think you called it open prejudice in in your commentary piece, and sort of subtle behavioral racism, right? Because on the one hand, you, 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 we have these Pew polls of you know eight or nine percent of people will state that they won't vote for a black president, say a qualified black president, and those are just ideological white supremacists. Those are people that are unashamed to say they think white people are superior. But then, and often, as you pointed out in your piece, you'll find similar or even higher numbers of that kind of open prejudice towards Catholics and Jews and Muslims and so forth. Um, So that couldn't really be the kind of thing that accounts for racial disparity in the case of black Americans. But what about this other kind of bias, right? The, The sort of, you're not an ideological racist, you're not openly prejudiced at all, but you cross the street when you see a black guy walking at night and you just have this sort of subconscious bias that you may even be ashamed of. You know, that kind of bias, to what extent can that account for, you know, racial disparities?
1: Well, I I think my personal opinion, and again, this is a complex literature where you have the pollsters that are looking at, you know, only 5% of people or whatever the case may be, will say this openly. Then you have the economists who are doing these complex linear regression models, and they're looking at the residual that would measure discrimination. And then you have sociologists that are doing what are called audit studies to try to use these almost tricky experiments to find racism I personally am more a math, more a linear logit, loglin regression guy. And I'm not sure that if you're looking at the same guy, black, white or Asian, that you find a massive effect of current discrimination at all. I mean, once again, that basic sentence, if you look at something like June O'Neill's article, if you adjust for, if I have this correct, it was median age, region of residence, years, not even quality of education. Like, do you trust the system enough to get that sheepskin And any one test score, the black-white income gap is, I mean, minuscule. So I I tend to believe that's true. I mean, on the one hand, there is the hidden residual racism that we'll talk about next. On the other hand, I mean, if we're being blunt, affirmative action has been in place since 1967, and 36% of businesses are owned either by minorities or minorities and women combined as a category. So, I mean, there's no inherent reason to suspect that a black or Asian guy from a middle class family would be at a huge disadvantage in 2021 relative to a white guy from a middle class family. Mm. What I see is that certain groups are talking about Southern blacks, in particular, natives, Appalachians. More people in certain categories are poor because of past genuine abuse. And it would be simply callous to deny that. Like, that's where a lot of that impact comes in. That if you look at states that have a lot of African-Americans or for that matter, a lot of, you know, formerly oppressed Southern, quote unquote, hillbillies, you have low income areas, talking Mississippi, Arkansas. So I I can't imagine you'd have the same chance to succeed coming from the Delta, whatever your skin color that you would again coming from the northern part of the East Coast. So that is um, a holdover of our country's unfortunate history. But you're taking the same guy. I mean, 11, 20 sat engineering student from michigan tech um i'm not sure subtle racism has all that much of an impact because the guy who would be facing the subtle racism is also going to benefit from the minority set-asides that exist from that very powerful black business community i mean just look up black business directory someday i've done it in my business affirmative action possibly depending on what institution they choose to attend so uh, I personally, again, don't think that once you adjust for the variables that are, would come into play and look at the residual, you're seeing a very large gap here. But the I mean, obviously, there are the audit studies, just being honest to you know the honorable opposition that claim to find that do find a fair amount of residual bias. So, for example, you could put black as versus white names on a resume and submit that to a series of companies and see whether having a black name resulted in a lower rate of callback. And, I mean, very famously, two sociologists, Bertrand and Melanthenon, if I have that correct, did this back in 2004. They found the Black names got 33%, about a third less callbacks. And this sort of thing, this sophisticated stuff, which is well done, is what's usually used to argue, well, hidden racism causes these, for example, lower Black incomes. There are a couple issues with this, though. Um, The first is that there's no real logical mechanism why it should um, I've talked to some sociologists that I'm fairly friendly with on online, Rod Graham or Xavier Bonilla, is a psychologist, but familiar with this stuff, and just asked, well, this has been electronic for twenty five years. Why wouldn't you, if you're black just submit two more resumes? And there's no there's no answer to that. just sort of some hemming and hawing and O'Reilly, you always make sense Jeans
0: planning we're we're talking about submitting a resume for one particular job, right?
1: Yeah. If you submit your, basically what the audit studies as they're called five is that if you submit a resume to an employer that has an identifiably black name on it, Mm -hmm. you are, there's going to be a differential between five and say 40% in terms of how likely you are to be called back. But there are a number of problems with this. I mean, the the first and most obvious is that job application today, if you're looking at the Craigslist and MTurks and monster.coms and so on is largely an electronic process. And in any field, there are going to be hundreds of jobs in a good sized city where people are using these electronic processes. So, I mean, simply showing that you are 15 percent less likely to be called back doesn't necessarily mean that that causes a gap in income because you could simply choose to apply, for example, to more jobs. Or if you felt it likely that this would occur, you could just put your first initial and your last name on your resume. As in fact, many black professionals do adjusting for racism, whether or not it's there. And you can really unpack this if you're interested in it. I mean, one other question would be, do identifiably black names indicate race or do they indicate class?
0: Yeah, that's a. I that, I think that's a very key point. I mean, the, the, one, one thing that is really important to think about with the audit studies is that most black people don't have identifiably black names, Right. I I think that's true to say the the majority, and those who do have stereotypically identifiably black names are far more likely to be poor, and so in a way this whole the whole finding of this literature is another case of us talking about race when we could be talking about class, right? Like the, the the whole audit study, it simply doesn't affect me or most black people that I I would have grown up with in, in suburban New Jersey. Whereas there's a lot of middle-class black people, very, you know, many of whom, perhaps the majority of whom don't have identifiably black names. So what you're talking about is not, is not something that all black people can claim as a disadvantage. It's something that a subset of black people from a particular class background could claim as, as a disadvantage. And I'm, you know, it's interesting the extent to to think about the extent to which this point would also be true about people with sort of stereotypically redneck names. Yep, Exactly. Um, and then the the other point about this is, and I, I don't know, you you probably know more about this, but I, I've seen at least one or two audit studies where people with identifiably Chinese names also got fewer callbacks on the order of black names. Is that is that, were those studies flukes or is that, does that tend to
1: happen? No, it's, it's extremely common. So there, there's actually quite a bit there in terms of why I do think racism exists. I don't think it explains gaps that we see between blacks and whites in a 39% POC, 89% non-racist society. I think these two things are separate, and I think that they are often joined into one point by modern sociology. Yeah. And it complicates this dynamic extremely just to ask, what about Asians in Nigeria? Again, no one, no white bigot can tell a West Indian guy from a black American guy. The, the $20,000 gap in incomes there has to be due to something else. And almost the point of my recent research was kind of digging out what that is. And I think people like Tom Sullivan, past The Economist and so on, have already given us a, a lot of help in figuring out what that might be. So, I mean, with these audit studies, point one is the, the first thing you said. The, the class and race literature actually is pretty interesting. Like there's another study by two guys named Derolia and Kodel who decided to totally get rid of the class issue by using identifiably minority last names, Jefferson or Lopez, Hernandez, and then just neutral first names. Uh, Chloe was one. I think Bria was one of them, Carlos. And seeing how, I don't know about Bria, but just, it just sort of standard names and then very identifiably ethnic last names and sending these to employers on resumes and seeing if there's any difference in hiring. And there wasn't at all. Like, Carlos Hernandez isn't in any hiring as versus versus a white guy whatsoever. Neither were the people with the black names of Washington. So why is that? Well, because these are, these are middle-class names I and mean, that that's the mm. thesis of the study that if you, if you call someone, right. and his name wasn't in the study, but Marcus Freeman or Carlos right, right. Garcia, you're a your business. Yeah, person.
0: People are very, I mean, all of this stuff has to do with sort of social pattern recognition, right? And people, Can't help but notice that the the people that are named, you know, Loquisha and all of the various stereotypical variants of those kinds of Ladasha. I knew I knew about someone who's named Ladasha with an actual dash rather than D. Oh, that's kind of cool,
1: actually. yeah. Yeah,
0: but like, right? So the people who parents who give their kids those kinds of first names tend to come from very poor hood backgrounds, right? And analogously, you know, with white Americans, there are certain kinds of first names that are telltale signs of coming from a sort of quote unquote white trash redneck background, whatever less offensive term one wants to use there.
1: Appalachian American.
0: Right. So, so that, what you're, what you're talking about there is that we are, without realizing it, we are so sensitive to the difference between giving your kid a particular kind of first name and what that probably signals about you statistically and having the last name that signals that you're just in general a minority. P- people are sensitive to all of these social and cultural differences. And that ends up doing a few things, namely punishing people from lower class backgrounds who, by no fault of their own, sort of have the the cues of being a person that might be a problem, even if they're totally not a problem and having to suffer that prejudice throughout their lives. But then also making it so that people who are minorities, but not at all from those backgrounds, might feel as if they are also being hampered by prejudice that they're not actually experiencing. So... I think that we should talk about the cops. This is actually the first chapter of your book. And I think you rightly point out that this is the center of the bullseye of the narrating the, the narrative of continuing oppression. Namely that it's dangerous to be a black man in particular in America when it comes to the cops. This is a complicated issue. There's lots of facets to it. but Let's just start out with your view of what the dominant narrative is right now and your view of
1: the biggest flaws in that narrative. Well, I mean, I, I think that in, in terms of talking about like, I mean, I teach at State U, you worked for a major think tank, although you're doing a your thing in business. I mean, I, I don't think a lot of the things we're saying are opinions so much as they're you know, a couple of guys from that scholarly perspective looking at the research. A lot of this is just factual. What I think the dominant narrative is, is that there's a near race war between blacks and whites and the cops are out there murdering black men. And the reason I think this is when people like uh, E. Kaufman, the political scientist or Skeptic Research Center survey young brothers and others, I mean, African-Americans and white students friendly with African-Americans and so on. What they find is that people believe incredible things about the police. After years of media panicking, by the way, people also believe incredible ass things about COVID and about illegal immigration over on the right and so on. I mean, people need to turn off the TV or the library on occasion. But the the police thing is specifically relevant to to what I do. Uh, Skeptic Research Center did a large end study, hundreds if not thousands of people. And they found that among people who identify as very liberal or, I mean, the the term for that would be leftist, I believe 35% of them believe the number of unarmed young black men killed by police in a typical year was uh, about a thousand. Another 15% might correct this, believed it was about 10,000 and 7% believed it was more than that. I I
0: actually wrote down one of the stats here that that this one is about mainstream liberals, which is to me even more concerning. So you have it according to skeptic that 27% of mainstream liberals believe about a thousand unarmed black people are shot by the cops in a given year. Right, and that so that's a quarter of mainstream liberals are off by a factor of like at least fifty.
1: Yeah, two orders of magnitude. It's usually around yeah. nine to seventeen. I mean, that, that's an unbelievable statistic.
0: Yeah, and that it just gives you a sense of yeah. So anyway, continue.
1: No, no, it's uh, basically I, I think that's what the mainstream narrative is that if you look at left, is thirty five percent of them. If you look at liberals, twenty five percent of them believe that a thousand to ten thousand unarmed brothers. Are murdered every year by the police. That's that is the narrative. The reality is that this is. We can debate whether the tiny discrepancy between black and white shooting victims due to racism or, or crime rate still higher, although we both know it's decreasing. That at least is an academic debate. But this this initial belief is just nonsensical. The total number of unarmed black men that were killed by police officers last year was 18, according to the Washington Post. I think maybe eleven of those officers, although you could easily bet my numbers here, were Caucasian. So I mean, if you think that that number is ten thousand and it's ten, I mean, you're talking about three order of magnitude. One thousand, rather, yeah,
0: yeah. Or or Do do some people? Oh, I guess yeah. Some of the very liberals think it's ten
1: thousand, right? Yeah, yeah. Twenty-two percent of it. It's not not a small number, but I mean, and that that's just the standard leftist political (laughs) views category. Very very liberal identified. But yeah, I mean, a thousand, it's two orders of magnitude off. Mm. So I think that there's a real question here about why people are off by, let's say, one to three orders of magnitude when it comes to the number of people and specifically of innocent black men that are killed by police. And the obvious explanation is the unending media narrative about this, where cases that involve, in many cases, frankly, a fairly unsympathetic in the legal sense victim like Jacob Blake, uh, Michael Brown. Micaiah Bryan, although it's tragic whenever a miner loses their life, these are thrust into the public eye over and over again. There's about one a week because that's the rate at which this happened, one every couple of weeks. And I think most people feel, well, they can't be exploding every single one of these. This must just be the tip of a very mm-hmm. large iceberg. And that's, mm-hmm. that's where you get these figures existing in people's minds like a thousand or more. Uh, in reality, we've just gone through the unarmed figure. The total it's, it's number is the whole
0: iceberg. I mean, they're showing you the whole iceberg
1: every single chip of ice.
0: showing you almost zero of the cases in which similar things happen to white people. It's the combination of those two things,
1: right? Yeah, it's it really is a striking pattern. I mean, so in a typical year, the total number of people killed by police, this includes people armed with semi-automatic rifles, what some would call assault rifles, foot-long knives. This includes people trying to hit cops with a vehicle, you know, an escalator, a suburban, a giant. I mean... So every single police shooting death in a typical year comes to about a 1,000. It was 1,021 last year. You know, of those cases, perhaps 200 to 250, 250 would probably be more accurate, will include people that are identified as African-American. I mean, logically, that means, except for a small number of un-ID cases, that 70 to 75 percent of these cases involve Caucasian, whites, or Hispanics. Um, When I speak to small audiences like men's groups or local political events, I'll always ask people, can you name one victim of such a shooting? And almost no one can. Every so often with the working class white audience, you'll get one, Dylan Noble or Mr. Tempa, something like that. But again, the reality is that this isn't an isolated number of cases. In addition to the black genocide, it's 75 percent of all the cases That are intentionally not magnified by the mainstream media. And that's an extraordinarily major problem that no one discusses. The only real question of even potential racism here is okay, black people make up 14 or whatever percent of the country. You know, 23% is nine, 10 percentage points higher, 24%. Why are we overrepresented? That at least is a valid question. But again, this gets back to the things that we're talking about. Like if you adjust for age and class, most black and white gaps close. So Because we're a younger, more working class population, we have a higher crime rate. Nationally, it's more than twice the white crime rate if you look at victim reported violent crime. So if you adjust for the rate at which black people encounter the police, the gap in terms of the rate at which we get shot by the police totally vanishes. The only even potential admixture of racism there is whether the rate at which we encounter the police is like 0.1% higher than it should be, given the difference in crime rate. And we can have that conversation, but that's not what you're seeing on the news. What you're seeing on the news is these flashing headlines like another one did blood in the streets continues because that's how the news do. And in this case, it's a real disservice that's causing problems for American race relations. All banter aside. Yeah,
0: I think there's one aspect to this that's worth saying, which is I tend to be uh, I tend to be very skeptical as you are of claims that Cops pull the trigger on a black suspect where they wouldn't on a white suspect, especially now when you look at the incentives of doing so, right? Does the average cop want to absolutely destroy his or her life by pulling the trigger on a black suspect unless they feel that their life is incredibly at risk, right? No cop wants to become the next Derek Chauvin. On the other hand, I'm less skeptical of claims that black people in general are more likely to be harassed by the police, for instance, and and otherwise, you know, nettled, because there the incentives are very different. Right, a cop is not going to ruin his life by giving a black guy a hard time, or you know, and, and that's an area where claims of racial bias are much more plausible. Racial profiling, for instance, and. I think part of the reason people are at least a subset of people, perhaps not the sort of the, the people pulled by skeptic that are completely confused about this, but definitely a subset of black people are open to this narrative about, you know, genocide because it expresses the a frustration they've experienced from, say, being pulled over too many times by the cops where their white friends aren't or, or something like that. Or, you know, being a, a black person that grew up in a particular neighborhood during stop and frisk, say, and you just get this overwhelming feeling of frustration towards the cops that are constantly harassing you and so forth. And so it becomes a proxy the, the issue of killing becomes a proxy for, for the issue of non-life threatening harassment so how do you view just the issue, not of killings, but of racial bias in policing and in, in other ways?
1: Um, I think there might be some of that, but this gets into an issue I have with a lot of the black discourse in the USA, which is kind of this narrative of they're doing to us. You know, where you hear if like I play basketball, I have a barber to get this beautiful smooth <laughs> And I mean, although I did this myself, today, not the hardest haircut. But anyway, I mean, just going down the line, I'm I'm in a lot of male environments, some like golf are integrated, some like hoops are mostly black. I've heard a lot of black men talk. And this is one of the things that you often hear, like, look at this neighborhood, it's run down, look what they give us. And, you know, looking around, I, I do lean a little right. And I very often think, you know, this is, bro, this has been a middle class black neighborhood for 60 years. You know, if you have a problem with this, it might be time for us to fix some of it. You know, I'm available to help, you know, blacktop this parking lot in a month. You know, it's, So this is the same sort of thing, like the police unprovokedly are attacking us in Black and Hispanic communities. That's not how that works. So since at least the late 1980s, most police departments have used the CompStat model of policing or an enhanced, more cyber-based version of the CompStat model of policing, where you could use Stata or Excel or something like this. But essentially, you keep track of what are called the index crimes in your city murders, rapes, burglaries, you already know this, and you send officers where there are the most indexed crime. And it is simply the case that minority neighborhoods in general, since at least the 60s, have had a higher crime rate. So the reason that there are more police, at least 70, 80, 90% of it, in working class Black and Latino communities, is that there's more crime there. Like Stop and Frisk in New York was totally focused on areas where there was a lot of gun crime. And I'm sure that, you I mean, you got the jokes, they'll pat you down looking in your shoes for a bag of weed and so on. But what they were primarily looking for, at least for the first 10 years of the program, was guns and knives. And they found quite a few of them. So I understand how annoying that is. I've experienced this in Chicago. I understand how annoying that is if you're a law-abiding young man, if you're a student or athlete. But the first point is that that's why the police are there. And again, if you adjust for the rate at which the independent variable occurs, the dependent variable at least the coefficient for significance dropped to almost nothing. I mean, in New York, when you say, well, 60% of the people stopped by the police are young men, usually of color in working class neighborhoods. I mean, the question would become what percentage of the criminals happen to be young men often, but not always of color from working class neighborhoods. And I wouldn't be surprised if those figures are almost identical. Roland Fryer tried to look at this. I mean, he did a pretty good job of equalizing all of the variables and looking at what would happen to essentially the same black as versus identical white defendant during a police stop. And what he found was that, if I recall correctly, you were about 15% more likely to be shoved or to hear profanity or something like that as a black male than as a white male, And that kind of gels with what you were saying. I mean, we all know why the cops are there, but are they a bit more harsh, a bit more abusive, maybe? Does that hold true even when you equalize things? Yeah, but it seems to be about this 15% difference. Then when he went up to more serious encounters, I mean, shooting, killing, for fatal shootings, he found that whites were 27.5% more likely to be shot than uh, people of color with identical characteristics. So the reality isn't brutal abuse of either group. It's this fairly complex picture where the cops are more often in tough neighborhoods of color. They might be a little hostile, foolish sometimes. But even that gap is under 20, 25 percent. And then when you get up into actual acts of serious violence, shootings, I would suspect beatings, you don't see a difference or you see a difference in the other direction. So that's the reality. And I mean, I noticed that a lot of coverage of Fryer's paper focused on that lower level conflict saying, well, black people are more likely to be shoved, more likely to be cuffed. Sure. But I mean, imagine the coverage had things gone the other way. And we found that black people were 30 percent more likely to be shot. Um, In reality, that was a difference that more negatively affected essentially poor whites or maybe Latinos than it did black Americans. And so you saw kind of the veil of silence descend again. So a complex picture, but I don't I don't see the brutal abuse just of black people.
0: I think, you know, it, it occurs to me the point you made earlier is a really important one that I want to reiterate. This is two things can be true at once that. There is racial bias, this kind of often subconscious racial bias that black people and in many cases, black men are on the receiving end of more than other groups. And at the same time, that racial bi it's a very different thing to say that that racial bias is the cause of all or most racial disparities, right? Because it's it's not at all obvious. And usually not at all plausible, that that racial bias is such a large factor, such a large determining factor in the life path of a particular individual, that experiencing it significantly affects where you end up in life. Right? There are all kinds of experiences of racial bias. you can have very, very um, upsetting ones that nevertheless are not going to affect where you end up in life. And, and to the extent that they even contribute to that will never approach the importance of the role of what was your family like? Did your parents read to you a lot growing up? Right? If, you, if you just think about the, the percentage of contribution to your life outcomes of various things, right? what's taking up that pie chart? What's well, taking up that pie chart is, is all of the sort of obvious common sense things that don't often get talked about in, in this conversation, right? It's like, just did you grow up in an environment that was not chaotic, a violence-free home where you experienced, you had a, a cognitively rich environment of books and programs and social healthy socializing and, you know, very little early childhood trauma, right? It's like, that's over 50% of the pie chart right there. And so, and there are huge differences in the extent to which people experience those things by race and by culture. So I think that's, that's sort of a, a very key point. And it's a, it's a subtler point than is allowed for by the, the quality of discourse on this issue. It's probably a bit of a tough point to make in, in 30 seconds on, on CNN. But it's, uh, it's extremely important, Show it seems to me. So there's an, another thing I want to touch on with you is the theme of your hate crime hoax book. So you, so you wrote a book about the phenomenon of hate crime hoaxes, which is fascinating. I, I think, I'm sure people have different stories uh, that they can think of. But the, the one that occurred, occurred to me preparing for this podcast was I had a friend who went to a music conservatory in New York and um, he knew this, this girl who drew a swastika on her own dorm room, right? That wasn't discovered until the tape came out, until I checked the security footage or whatever. But it was, it was a black girl who victimized herself a la Jessie Smollett you know, garnered all the sympathy that came with that for a little while until it all came crashing down and she got expelled. And this is a very interesting psychological phenomenon. You know, why do do people do this? Can you talk a little bit about your impetus to, to write that book?
1: Well, Hate Crime Hoax was a book that I was inspired to write by my own experiences, which were pretty similar to yours. I think most students at any reasonably elite institution have had an experience like this. But I was inspired to write it by my own experiences in the Chicago grad student community. Um, I came back home for a period of time while I was attending grad school. My mother was very sick. And, you know, I took the Chicago Tribune. I had a lot of friends that went to, you know, Loyola, DePaul, U Chicago, the schools in the area, because I'm a Chicagoan by background. And, and of course, the University of Illinois, UIC. But at any rate, within a period of about three years, you're talking about maybe 2012, late 2013, there were a whole series of these incidents in the city. Um, The nightclub Velvet Ultra Lounge, which is a hipster friendly kind of gay night hosting venue where some of my friends would dance, was burned to the ground. And these awful anti-gay slurs were written through the bar. If you Google uh, Velvet Rope Ultra Lounge, this was a national story that occurred. There was an incident on the campus of the University of Wisconsin Parkside where death lists of people targeted for death, quote unquote, that included all the black students on campus were literally found tacked to trees and walls throughout the campus. There are at least several of these, a quote unquote noose was found on the campus. Uh, There was a situation at the University of Chicago where Derek Coqueline, a young campus activist, claimed that people had hacked his Facebook. His social media were threatening him with death and, as I recall, anal rape. I mean, disturbing stuff. Certainly rape threats were made, according to him. Uh, Another situation at Michigan Tech. And making a long story short, all these turned out to be complete fakes. Um, Cochrane, as I recall, was traced using his own IP. The Wisconsin Parkside case, um, a black student on campus, put up the list. She was identified because her name was the only one on the list that was spelled correctly. Um, And the Velvet Rope case, (laughs) I mean... Bro. But I mean, the velvet rope case was one of those where the nightclub owner turned out to have owed a lot of people a lot of money, which I mean, I don't know who his connections were, but that's not always the best idea in Chicago. He needed the money. He set his own club on fire and collected the insurance revenues. This only came to light because his boy was caught up in like a drunken driving out of state case or something, something ridiculous and ended up literally snitching. He turned state's evidence. So these just tawdry stories came out of what had been all of these civil rights incidents. There was another case at Michigan Tech where a guy allegedly said he was going to shoot every black student on campus. It turned out he said he was going to shoot every black student on campus a smile because he was trying to ramp down racial tensions. And like his campus rival took his tweet or whatever, edited and photoshopped it and then posted it back online. Just ugly stuff like fraternity rivalries kind of crap. And every one of them turned out to be fake. And I became curious as someone who was a Breakfast Tribune reader and had seen maybe four or five pieces on each one of these over two years. How often does this happen? We keep hearing about these Duke Lacrosse, Tawana Brawley sort of stories. And very often, in Agate Type, a little later on, we find out that it was it was all bullshit, Coleman. So I actually, I decided to, first, I looked at a list of prominent hate crime cases that I had seen over the years. And I found, and the methodology there is not, it, it, it wasn't what became the final book, but I just as a note, I found that the large majority of them, over half, had eventually been revealed as hoaxes. So then I actually, I just started searching for you hate I mean, crime. over half of all hate c- crimes uh, reported. Uh, well, of, of an initial set of hate crime cases that I had become interested in, mm. essentially I just pulled from the news wires. Either at the time I began searching or later on down the road, it was revealed that these, these sort of prominent cases were hoaxes. Um. This is discussed early on in hate crime hoax, but this is that's that's actually not the main theme of the book. The main theme of the book is that I set up to do some independent research, and so I used I mean Google, Google Scholar, JSTOR. I searched terms like hate crime hoax, narrative collapse, hate crime collapse, and within a fairly short period of time, I had pulled together a set of four hundred nine of these revealed hoax cases, which were concentrated mostly, not entirely in the five years around the period where I was researching. And that, by the way, that data set still exists. Anyone to watch the program can request it from me. It's now up to 630 or so case studies that include more than a thousand individual cases. And what makes this notable, I'm not saying the majority of hate crimes, if you're talking about like fights motivated by race, this sort of low-level stuff, are hoaxes at all. But there are less than 7,000 FBI-reported hate crimes in a typical year. Of those, when I did the online work, I did the search engine work, less than 10% are at all covered in national or regional media, as indicated by the first 100 pages of search results for the the platforms just given. So at the most basic level, there are 7,000 or less of these in a year. Perhaps 700 receive mainstream national coverage. And over the course of five, six years, I had accumulated a data set of more than 400 of these, these hoaxes mm. out of, say, perhaps 3,500 potential nationally reported cases. And I mean, that implies to me, I mean, more research to be done. I'd, I'd like to see people do some deep digging on how common this is, at least among prominent incidents. But I mean, that, that reveals that this is not an occasional one-off thing. I mean, this has happened in the recent past hundreds, hundreds of times. Yeah. So I then started unpacking the cases to see what they had in common, and there's really one predictor variable: uh, Muslim Americans are actually at this time very likely to report hoax state incidents. I have no idea whether that's something that is true over the universe of cases more than the past decade or so. But the a much more prominent, notable fact was that a huge number of these took place on college or university campus or, or senior prep school campuses. I mean, that was around a third of my data set. There's a complete, and by the way, I will note there are other lists of these. There's um, a website, www.fakehatecrimes.org, that contains a substantially different list of 300, 350. I mean, there's the fake hate crimes list, which is hosted on one of sort of the junior academic reddits. I mean, that I haven't gone through all that, but that's about 600 so there, I mean, I have no idea what the overlap is between these, but if you go to fakehatecrimes.org, you'll also see there that more than a third of the cases take place on, you know, a college or U campus. So academia seems to be the place where these cluster. Mm. Um, and I mean, certainly if you look at a lot of these prominent cases, uh, Air Force Academy, Kansas State, Duke Lacrosse, Wisconsin Parkside. Key in college with the death threats, Goucher College. I mean, just any of the, these sort of things that have made headlines recently, they they very often come out of academia. So you have to wonder about the relationship between that sort of hothouse academic culture and people to some extent making up these lies. Uh, Oberlin, where the Klan's been spotted multiple times. <laughs> and so on the, you don't want to make fun of it. But uh, I think it was also Oberlin where a transgender person in charge of a like, student life was caught spray painting things like tranny, go home all across the campus. That could be a different university, but at these liberal arts institutions in particular, this is very common.
0: I think it's really important to unpack why these things happen at all and then why they happen more in certain places than others. I think it's a rich, I think it's a richer conversation than just there's some crazy people out there, right? I think, um, you know, it occurs to me as I was preparing for this podcast, I remembered this psychological condition called Munchausen. Have you heard of this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Munchausen, I don't know so much about it, but I think it's just people, there's a certain set, subset of people that are into being sick and being cared for. So they make themselves sick on purpose, check themselves into a hospital in order to get the tender love and care of nurses and doctors but there's actually nothing wrong with them. They're just continually low level poisoning themselves. And this happens often enough that nurses and doctors are trained to spot it. And uh, it it occurs to me, there just is a kind of psychological profile of a person that enjoys being a victim so much that they will become a victim. And I think there's more to say about it than that, right? Because It could just just be that there are these weird people out there, just like there are psychopaths and pedophiles and, you know, us normal people can just sort of study them from afar and be kind of horrified and whatever. But I I think it's actually, there's more to say about it than that, because I think people with Munchausen or people who commit these hate crime hoaxes are just an extreme case of a much more normal kind of phenomenon. Which is the enjoyment not of being victimized, but of being a victim. And there's a, there's a low level version of this that is actually pretty pervasive in the culture. And, you know, it, it also occurs to me I, I've been talking to some people about getting the vaccine um, and a few different people have agreed that there was something pleasurable about being sick from the vaccine, right? Like something about just being able to throw off the responsibilities of normal life because you're not doing well, getting the sympathy from friends and family. Like there's something perversely enjoyable about a certain kind of suffering that is recognized by the outside world as suffering and that garners you sympathy and support. And and so I think even psychologically normal people can, to some extent, relate to the feeling that really motivates people to do these kinds of extreme things all the time. And I think when there's a culture, such as I'm sure there is at Oberlin, and there certainly was at Columbia where I went, of extreme and reflexive validation of experiences of racism and, and a taboo on skepticism on common sense, skepticism of like, really you saw the clan. I don't know. Isn't that a, you know, there, there's a taboo on that kind of skepticism. Um, I think the people with those psychological profiles just feel empowered. I'm not sure that there, there are more of them there than there are anywhere else necessarily. I just think they're, they're sort of given free reign, and there's very little pushback on their antics and on their sort of psychological hang up or their psychological complex, let's say. Yeah. So does any of that resonate with your observations about people uh, that you studied in the book?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. Now, the book is more a piece of you know, quantitative political science analysis, so many mm. cases here, than it is of really in-depth psych analysis. So I, I wouldn't necessarily presume at the individual level to do so you go through and evaluate these guys? But what you said at the group level, obviously, I, I think it's pretty accurate. So Munchausen syndrome, as I understand it, is harming yourself or somehow, sometimes harming others, like a child by proxy, yeah. to gain attention and support by presenting yourself as a victim. Mm. And the inimitable gad sad, the gad father has uh, actually coined the term collective Munchausen by proxy. Oh, Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. To describe some of this social justice mobbing, like, you could almost use the term stolen victimhood here. Like, although I am a well-adjusted, upper-middle-class, you know, party-going student from Cleveland, I, as a black bisexual woman, have suffered. You know, and so it's, and you see this very often, college dating scene. So, I mean, just living life as, I mean, I'm still the years under 40 and I live in a city. So, I mean, you see this a lot. It is not a rare thing. I, I can't help but believe that this is implicated in, uh, a fair amount of what you see on the campus. I mean, where what you what you do constantly, when you create a value around something, you get more of it. So what we've done with victimhood is tell people that there are rewards for victimization. These range from the practical, like affirmative action, to the more subtle, like constant affirmation. Uh, I think it would be fairly annoying to be a white conservative cowboy on the Columbia campus.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I used to joke that if you were just like a, a straight white person at Columbia or Barnard, then you better come up with something or else you're just going to be <laughs> come up with being queer or, you know, just some kind of spice, something to spice it up, or else you're just going to be, you're going to be a nobody.
1: <laughs> when I think of the dating partners of like younger friends and mentees at Kentucky state UK, and it's less extreme here, but in solid soul and, know, and wash you in St. Louis. I mean, virtually none of them would identify as being straight white people which is really fascinating. Virtually all of them would be gender non-binary or bisexual, which is, of course, perfectly normal. But I mean, the percentage of college women that could describe themselves using that language is probably around 50. It's certainly becoming more open as a way to say, well, I am not just a member of the straight oppressor cast." Even things you'd never expect, like, well, I am fat. I'm a person of size. And so you don't understand my experiences as a fat white woman. You know, and so on, and I personally person
0: of size. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry,
1: but just, just my by religion, I'm I'm pretty tolerant of this kind of thing, unless it you know really starts infringing on you know my rights. If if you want to identify as, you can see the list of Tumblr genders, each of which at least a thousand people on the site takes very seriously. I think that's the cutoff. But if you want to identify as this, well, all right. But you can't help thinking that there's a correlation between that. If I know there's a correlation between that stuff and the idea that if you are a boring, straight white person, you are an oppressor. Yeah, there, there's got to be a direct measurable P equals 0. 0.0001 relationship between going to these college environments where there's constant criticism of that and identifying as, you know, a bisexual, gender, non-binary, Jewish, not white person of size. That's something you don't see as much of on trading floors. But I mean, in the environment where this is made almost mandatory, obviously, we give value to victimization. And I I think quite a few of the people that I looked at in hate crime hoax, and I won't name the people I'm thinking of here, but we're lonely or we're just having a tough time with pre-law school or something like that and wanted that sense of affirmation and so made up some ridiculous story. You know why I'm failing? Because the Klan is after me. And, you know, it goes on down from there to people that believe that there is prevalent racism around campus. This really, I think, is what you saw a lot of at the Oberlin's and the U. Michigans and so on. People believe it's got to be there, but you just don't see a lot of it. So the racist must be hiding really well. So I'm going to falsify an incident. And this can sometimes lead to almost a whole mishmash of nonsense. Like the conclusion of one of my chapters is the whole University of Missouri story which was just absolutely nutty, where for a year we were hearing, if you follow the sports media especially, that there was this horrific abuse going on of these students. People were painting swastikas on walls and human crap, and whole football teams were sitting out their season. And if you unpack it, it's almost all BS. I mean, the quote-unquote poop swastika may or may not have existed. It possibly did in some form. No one knows who drew it. But most of the other stuff, like, again, there was a claim that the Klan was on campus. The student government president tweeted out, KKK has been spotted on campus. I am liaising with the state trooper, you know, sick in parentheses, the National Guard. We we will protect you. And like generals were pointing out like, well, when we work with a major educational institution, we don't talk to the student body president. Like, I don't know who this kid is. (laughs) The the Klan is not (laughs) visible here. So, I mean, it, it turned out to almost entirely be just be a pack of lies. But this went on for months. There was, a, there was a hunger striker at one point who said that he was going to be on strike until healthcare became more affordable on campus. I believe at one point he said specifically it would be difficult for him to purchase sort of graduate student healthcare. And the problem, as it turns out, was that he was worth $20 million, or at least his family was. He was the son of a senior executive of one of the major railroads. Um, who was one of the wealthiest men in Omaha. Just like point by point, people kept saying this stuff. The school president's motorcade hit me with a car and then it would be debunked. And then the next piece would come along and it would be debunked. The journalist, Clay Travis, who kind of got flagged as being on the right for doing this, uh, ran a bunch of hilarious stories about this. But that is the extreme where in some of the major liberal arts universities, almost every couple of months, you will see one of these scandals or one of these stories of brutal genocidal racism. And it will almost invariably turn out to be false or a joke. Yeah.
0: And actual hate crimes are not only vanishingly rare, but usually more mundane. I think that's part of the point of your book. At least least that's one of the points I draw from it is that the ones that are super flashy and involve like nooses and bleach thrown on people's faces and swastikas, feces, made of feces, like those are the ones that almost invariably turn out to be. If people, when people make something up, their mistake is to to make it too
1: flashy. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting insight, actually. I hadn't thought of that. I suppose that's true. Like the general pitch line that I would do for the book, if you're talking about a Fox News or very occasional, if it happens, MSNBC or CNN appearance, but I mean, the, the tagline would be, If you look at sort of these major, actually, I don't think I've ever appeared on the latter networks, at least in this context. But anyway, the, but the tagline would be something like, if you look at these major incidents, like Jussie Smollett, Covington Catholic, Erica Thomas, the DC dreadlock cutting where beautiful young black girl said she was held down almost scalped, you know, another incident in Grand Rapids where someone said they were urinated on, you know, Air Force Academy where a general had to come talk to them about the level of racism that was you know, being presented on campus, Duke Lacrosse, Tawana Brawley, the Rolling Stone rape hopes, where the claims was that the fraternities were running these story of O style rape rings upstairs. Um, the the Every story I just described turned out to be a total fake. Yasmin Saweed, the torn hijab and broad day on the New York Sixth train. So I don't think I would even dispute the claim that the majority of mundane race and anti-Semitic incidents happened. I mean, like if someone says I got my ass kicked outside a tough black club or a biker bar, a country bar, something like that at closing time. I mean, I I would say that that's unfortunate and real and get the police involved. I mean, but ironically, one of the signs of a fake hate incident is the invocation of kind of the old wars of the past between blacks, whites, natives, the this sort of symbology that no one uses in the urban upper class at all. Right. Like how many members of the Klan are there?
0: Right. A couple thousand, I think, at most
1: now. Yeah. And how many live within driving distance, Oberlin College, and would just be able to walk by the sizable campus police station? I mean, it's really,
0: you know, the the alt-right is the much bigger thing nowadays. But the the Klan is still so much in our historical memory that I think people who make things up, as you say, they reach for those old tried and true symbols of hatred.
1: Yeah, and it, one of them is like the badly drawn swastika. Yeah. Where, I mean, like, I, I don't know if offhand I'd be able to draw a swastika, but where you see them <laughs> and it's like a circle with three points coming out of it. And it's just like, you know, black party guy drew this and I don't have any yeah. idea. You know, it, it very, very, being, being good sir. very, very often that happens. You see something that it's objectively very likely was not real that is then revealed not to be real. The bigger thing, as you've said, is kind of the taboo against pointing this out. So you'll have, um, I mean, there was a recent case where a young woman in Madison, Wisconsin claimed that she was driving and a group of quote unquote frat boys in Hawaiian shirts, if I recall correctly, drove up next to her, rolled down their window, somehow neatly sprayed her with lighter fluid and then threw a lighter into the car, which caused her to catch fire. I'm not sure how that would work considering how lighters work, but you know, this is this is a hate incident and uh, people almost immediately in kind of online culture, Reddit and Twitter and so on, started saying, well, wasn't there a riot on campus that day? Like people attacked one of the administration buildings with bottles full of lighter fluid and there was blowback on the students. We all saw videos of this. And none of that, as far as I can recall, made it to national television because it violated this taboo against criticizing these things openly And in the end, inevitably, the police conducted the multiple thousand dollar investigation. And they found that the cameras at the intersection where this had been alleged to occur had recorded nothing and so on down the line. And it it was just sort of memory hold. While most people that are at least aware of Internet culture or youth culture know what happened and knew what happened within a day or two of this occurring. So, yeah, the more flamboyant, the more Mm -hmm. ridiculous. So on the the less likely it probably is that something occurred. You know, Chicago is not mega country.
0: And it's, uh, it's, it's of a piece which is the taboo on injecting reason and logic into conversations about racism. Right? Like, if, you, if after the thing happened to Jesse Smollett or the thing didn't happen, there's a lot of people who didn't want to say and perhaps didn't even allow themselves to think, well, why did he keep the noose on his neck while in the hotel room until the cops arrived? Yeah. I mean, if that had happened to me, would I just stick around with a noose on my neck for no reason and not take it off immediately and try to shake off what had just happened and lower my heart rate. And you know, that you just stick around with the noose. Even, even as when the cops are banging on your door, you don't think to take the noose. It was like he wanted them so badly to see him with the noose on, right? That's sort of the common sense thing. But I think a lot of people didn't want to say that and perhaps didn't even allow themselves to think it, which is
1: scarier. Yeah, the, the thing with the Jussie brother, juicy smile. Yay, to quote a Dave. <laughs> and they just said, the guy's become an international joke. But and you can almost feel sorry for him. I, I don't think a lot of people wanted. I don't think he expected this to go this viral. I don't think he knew the sort of climate we were in. As I recall, he was negotiating for something like a $10,000 raise on Empire and wanted to make a point about the crime of cli- crime and something to racism in the city. But it became this international story with him being interviewed. Yeah, first I think or, it sort first. of is what he wanted.
0: I think he, maybe he, he got a little in over his head, but I know he had tried to do something similar, but smaller
1: oh, yeah, okay. a few
0: months earlier with some kind of mail. Like he sent himself some hate mail, something like that, if I recall. But, and then he, he just like leveled it up. It didn't work, so.
1: No, but I mean, like jokes aside, there is, you know, you could almost feel some sympathy. I don't really, I'm not an extraordinarily nice person, but I don't, I don't think he expected <laughs> everything that he got. I'm but sure. I mean, the, the initial Jussie Smollett story was just unbelievably ridiculous. You're talking about the second or third coldest day of the year in Chicago, right there by the lake on the north side. Uh, he said he left home at 2 a.m. to get something like a warmed tuna sub. And he was approached by- That, 2- that was the dead giveaway. Yeah. No he one wants
0: approached- a subway. No one's going to walk that long for
1: a subway sandwich at 2 a.m. I mean, much, less, much less tuna. Very fair, fair point. Buffalo chicken or something. Maybe buffalo made. chicken. Would have made it more plausible. <laughs> but I mean, so, but the, this guy, he says that two guys approached him. They were big Caucasian guys. How he could see that, I don't know because they're wearing ski masks. I believe he said patriotic ski masks, whatever that even means. They were carrying like a knotted rope noose and a gallon bottle of bleach. And when they saw him, they yelled, this is MAGA country because they recognized him from Empire. Empire yeah. is, of course, then That number- was the also the dead giveaway. Definitely no, MAGA people are not watching Empire. Well, but that's exactly right. I mean, Empire is not exactly number one among deep rural Trump supporters, you know. But he says these old boys grabbed him, you know, two tough Caucasian fighting men, but he beat them both off, you know, throwing hands, still holding onto his sub, and finally they they grabbed him just enough to put the noose over his neck, and then they they ran away. They threw some bleach on him. Did they want to dye his beautiful black skin white? You know, just on and on and on with the nonsense. And this was taken as utterly plausible. As something someone might say, and I I actually notice this more and more debating sort of the woke, quote unquote, listening to people that I'm casually friendly with, like Colin Wright, have some of these conversations, you'll more and more often hear some opening line, like, well, there is a consensus among sociologists, you know, 18% of whom are Marxists or whatever, that, you know, whatever crazy thing, biological sex is a complex, tricky issue or you know, hate crimes of this kind are extraordinarily common or black violence against Asians is caused by Donald Trump or any other piece of complete nonsense. And then people will try to almost beat you into being gaslit by defending these ideas. And that's what happened with Jussie Smollett. I mean, the initial obvious reality that this was a hoax gave way to the largest media outlets and papers in the country talking about what a terrible tragedy this was until a lot of people just said, okay, maybe it happened. And then, of course, as the line in the book, Hate Crime Hopes, and, and then it occurred, you know, then the inevitable happened. They found the Nigerian brothers. The whole thing's hilarious. They found these two big, buff Nigerian guys he worked out with who had actually committed the attack, yeah. who confessed. It turns out Jesse paid by check, you know, and so that's that's where it is. And again, that's just sort of slid off the radar screen, aside from comedians making jokes. Jesse Smiles still on Twitter, you know, so it is what it is.
0: Yeah. Speaking of. Have you been paying attention much to the the rise in concern about hate crimes against Asians and the sort of narrative that's emerged around that? Are you paying attention to that?
1: I actually wrote a pretty major piece about this for commentary. Oh, you did? I'm considering it as a journal article. Yeah, yeah I mean, just short one sentence because I want to hear the rest of your question. But I mean, like the it's again an insane example of kind of the one narrative being shoehorned into the front piece starting gate position. I mean, what's happening is that a diverse group of urban criminals, more than 40 percent, probably more than 60 percent black, are beating up Asian guys. And somehow the claim is that this is due to Donald Trump's use of harsh language around COVID-19. And no, that, that has nothing to do with it. As I point out in the article, this is a pattern that's gone on for years. Crime against Asians, if you look at the 2018 BJS, is one of the few patterns of crime that's not same race dominated. Uh, even back then, 27.5% of attackers of Asians were black, 25% were white, 21% were Latino and other native, et cetera, Polynesian combined, 20% perhaps were Asian. I believe that was the lowest of the categories. We're now seeing that with a bit of an increase in the black category. It has absolutely nothing to do with Trump. And again, these are just obvious common sense facts that everyone on the ground in the city knows, but that you're not supposed to say.
0: Right. And And there's also, there's a history, there's a long history of... Tension between Asian, especially Asian store owners, in low-income Black communities, seem to be exploiting the community and seeming foreign to the residents there. There's a kind of natural tension, and that goes back decades, right? Crown Heights uh, riot and and so forth. But you know, is it? is it clear that even hate crimes in 2021 are increasing against Asians yet do we know that yet i mean cuz i know there was there seemed to be an increase last year or early last year but it's it seems like the narrative has emerged without the facts necessarily being reflective of it
1: yet yeah the the narrative around donald trump inspiring hood black, and for that matter, hood white attackers of Asians, just nonsense. It's totally non-factually supported. I'll say that openly on major podcasts, it's not real. I mean, the, the, now the 2020, the most recent hate crime data in good coherent form really isn't out there. Mm. But again, in the most recent year on record, we saw, I believe it was 205 hate crimes against Asians. And again, a diverse range of perpetrators. I believe blacks were over 20%. I would have to recheck the data. More than 40% of the people weren't identified by race, you know, shadow in the night, swings a punch, uh, like a solid number, 40% perhaps were Caucasian, but it was, it was the same pattern of a multicultural group of thugs. I mean, and, and I will note there are a lot of white criminals. I mean, the black crime rate is still measurably higher than the white crime rate, but in a lot of these cities out on the West coast, I mean, you'd have no shortage of anything from, you know, Filipino to a uh, Syrian American yeah. guys that might fight you. So it's, it's not just that it's black, although very heavily black, but it's just people in cities during a year when crime spike committing robberies. The idea that these guys are, to almost go back to Jesse Smollett, wearing MAGA hats and are somehow remembering some quote from Trump. Trump's been off the internet for 100 days. You know, is, there's, there's no factual support for that whatsoever.
0: The other thing to note about hate crimes is that, correct me if I'm wrong, don't Jews usually top the list every year? of reported hate crimes to the FBI.
1: Yeah, now this actually, this is a great way of closing the circle almost to the start of the conversation, because one of the points you made in passing that I didn't really address appropriately was this distinction between racism occurring and racism causing outcomes. We both agreed on that. But one obvious metric that's almost never discussed is the fact that you can bring groups other than blacks and whites into these analyses. So you made the point that audit studies, in fact, often show more discrimination against Chinese applicants, people with what are considered exotic names, Wangun Shu, for example, than they do against blacks or probably working class whites, most other groups here. But immigrant Chinese and Japanese Americans are one of the richest populations in the country. So, again, there's no X, Y causal link there at all because you can just press apply again and go down to the next job. You know, so the same thing here. I mean, yes, of course, there are hate crimes against Blacks, hate crimes against whites. But every year, uh, the two groups that dominate these hate crime stats on a per capita basis are Asians, certainly throw in Middle Easterners in that category, at least recently, and Jews every year. Every year, based on the size of the Jewish population, Jews are the largest or one of the largest victim groups for hate crimes in this country. They're attacked by whites. They're attacked by Blacks. And in fact, that's what you see with a lot of these small, successful communities, Um, You see attacks by, quote unquote, hood brothers. You see attacks by, quote unquote, redneck whites, recent immigrants from virtually anywhere. I mean, obviously, there are Hispanic gangs as well. All of those people are likely to target you if you live in a big, diverse city and you own a successful small store. So that's been a problem for Jews forever. And it's a problem for Asian-Americans today. And it has been since at least the 90s, if uh, you're familiar with your West Coast ramp.
0: Yeah, so I got to let you go. But this has been a great conversation, Wilfred. Before you go, can you tell my audience where to find your work?
1: Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm extremely wired in if you just google Wilfred Riley you'll find my website should have launched and you'll have Twitter Facebook and use one of the older platforms my university website uh so on down the line and my book uh both taboo and hate crime Hoax are not esoteric academic books they've both cracked the top 100 globally on Amazon they're very easy to find on that platform uh for that matter if you message me on Twitter I'll send you a signed copy I might charge you for it but uh just get in touch look forward to talking to people All right. Thanks so much, Wilfred. Thanks, Coleman. Good talking to you.
0: If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, ColemanHughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.